thank you so much for tuning in to the Psychology Is podcast. I'm Nick Fortino, and I'm super excited to be here today with Dr. Donna Freitas. How are you today, Donna? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm good too. I'm good too. I'm I'm excited for this conversation. So, for people who don't know, Dr. Freitas is a scholar and an author of many books, 23 books to be exact. Her most recent novel is The Nine Lives of Rose Napolitano. And uh, congratulations on publishing that. And I'm, I know you write nonfiction and fiction books and that you do research on this very topic we're going to discuss today, which is the psychology of consent. Um, other books you've written, there's one that I'm eager to read called The Happiness Effect, How Social Media is Driving a Generation to Appear Perfect at Any Cost. And then particularly as it pertains to our conversation, you wrote a book called Consent on Campus, a manifesto, and then also a book called Consent, a memoir of unwanted attention. And that's the one I've read. And I was just utterly captivated by it. You're a brilliant storyteller. And I mean, I know you're you're a professional storyteller, so perhaps that's no surprise, but I was very impressed with your ability to talk about your own story so skillfully, and especially because it was traumatic. And so I thought before we really dive into the psychology of consent and, and your insight around it, perhaps you can just briefly summarize for watchers and listeners what, what this book, Consent, is about? Oh, it's hard to summarize. I would just say uh, briefly or succinctly that it's uh, the story. So it's a memoir and it's a story of what happened to me during graduate school. Um, so I went to get my PhD uh, in my 20s and in my early 20s. And um, my advisor, uh, one of my professors, um, for lack of a better way of describing it, became very obsessed with me uh, and was behaving in such a way that amounted to stalking eventually and, and really sort of infiltrated aspect of my life, including my family, my, my parents, and in order to get to me. And so, so consent, the, the memoir tells the story of that experience and uh, also what it was like. I filed a Title IX complaint in graduate school and I had to go through all of that. And it's also about the aftermath, I guess the, the impact of what happened in graduate school on my life and, and my career. And, and one of the things I'm doing in the memoir is reflecting on um, just consent as a, as a topic, it was so complicated in my relationship with this professor. So uh, I think sometimes we oversimplify that conversation. We make it out to be as simple as yes means yes and no means no. And, but we don't necessarily talk about um, what, is it, what does it mean when um, in the beginning of a relationship. So for example, you know, I admired this professor in the beginning and I thought I was flattered by his attention in the beginning. And how do you go from that sort of a relationship to one where you're projecting this person outright? What does it mean to say no to someone who has so much power over you? Like, how do the dynamics of consent change when saying no to that person could cost you your future? 
So, um, so that's one of the things that I'm talking a lot about in the book. My, the difficulty that I had in, in navigating uh, his advances because I, I knew what it would mean to say no to this person and what, how it could affect my, my future. Mm. Excellent summary. And that's part of what was so intriguing about this was that I think we do, like you said, simplify the conversation about consent. And perhaps there's utility to simplifying it because in some cases it is simple, like no means no in some cases, but there is a level of complexity, particularly in certain situations, as in when there are power dynamics involved in the relationship. And so right right here early on in the interview, actually, I would like to read a, a passage from your book, which I think speaks to what we're talking about here and can, I think, launch us into the conversation nicely. So I'll read just two or three paragraphs here. You wrote that when we talk about consent, especially with high, with high school and college students, we make it seem like it is as simple as uttering the word no or yes. We encourage young adults to speak these words enthusiastically, determinedly, with resolve. That is exactly the word we call on when we teach about it, enthusiasm. Enthusiastic yeses as the mark of consent and firm noes as the mark of its absence. When I consider these words in my situation, yes and no, it just makes me laugh and think, are you kidding? How in the world does a student give a firm no to a professor, to someone so far her senior, to someone who could determine her future, to someone on whom her future depends? How in the world does a young woman give a decided no to a Catholic priest? And then I'll skip ahead here to a, another paragraph where you're really speaking to this complexity. So you wrote that the power dynamics between the old and the young, between a big man and a small woman, between someone famous and important in your profession and you when you were just starting out, between someone whom everyone loves and admires and you who are still a nobody, between someone you aspire to become and the person you are now can seem insurmountable. To name their behavior as unacceptable, to do so explicitly and forcefully may seem impossible, you know that to name it outright will more likely destroy you and your future than his. And that has been the pattern in our culture, hasn't it? The woman pays the price with her future, and the man keeps his present and his future as though he did nothing wrong. That is the deal we strike when we come, when we come forward, isn't it? <laughs> I feel like you nailed it. I feel like you put words on something many people feel but can't quite articulate, which of course is so empowering, you know, when, when people help us like that by putting words on our experience. And I can, I can only imagine how many, how many women or people in general have experienced the complexity of consent in an imbalanced power dynamic. So is there anything you'd like to say to, to elaborate on this? the idea of consent when there's an imbalance in power dynamics? Uh, it was interesting. It's interesting, I think, to listen to someone else read your words. <laughs> um, I think when I wrote that book, I found words that I needed, but I couldn't, hadn't been able to find before to articulate what I had experienced. And I think it's really only, you know, I'm, I wrote that book 20 years after, um, what had happened happened. And I think it took me that long 
to really to really understand what I was up against back then and why why I had failed so badly. I guess I had always felt like I had, um, if, if what had happened to me in graduate school with my professor was a test, I had failed it because it took me so long to, to really finally enthusiastically start saying no to him. It took me ages um, because I was so afraid to say no to him. And I think uh, sort of listening to that paragraph from a distance, someone else reading it back to me I think actually to myself, like, wow, yes, that is it. <laughs> and it's weird mm -hmm. to me that, that I'm the person who, who wrote <laughs> it and found those words to, our, to articul articulate that nuance. And I think one of the things I'm extremely aware of as someone who is often talking about everything in relation to Title IX, which has now become a major part of my, my own research, and also having gone through like Title IX trainings as a professor myself at different points. I still think it's so laughable, um, the different ways that we are, you know, telling people or sort of training people about how you handle these kinds of situations when they come up. Because I think we still are telling, you know, we're telling undergrads that like, what you need to do is just say no and then come tell us, <laughs> you know, come tell us if there's something inappropriate happened. and. You know, I think one of the things that we don't really, we don't really talk about maybe because we don't want to or because it's too intimidating or because we just don't have an answer to it is that, you know, everybody knows when they come forward uh, on some of these issues or, you know, to, to talk about someone, you know, someone did something inappropriate with me. We know that we're potentially, you know, ruining their lives. I think we know that more now than we did, you know, that, certainly back when I was um, that young, you know, when I was a student. And I think that weight uh, of knowing that this accusation is a big deal or like saying no to a professor like you would to a man at a bar, um, you know, somebody who was like pestering you, is it's a big decision. Like you're, it's not, he's not a guy at, a, at the bar. Like he's the person who's grading you. He's the person who maybe is going to direct your dissertation. He's the person who's going to recommend you or not to your future jobs. You know, he's going to, he's going to be the person who gets in the way of your future jobs and whether or not you get them. And so you have to really think about your no. And I don't know that there's really anything that we can do to prepare someone for that is the thing. And I, I've often thought a lot about how, um, like the burden needs to not be on the person who's not in power, like in theory, like, we have to, like, the burden has to be on the person who's the professor, or the person who has the power to know what the boundaries need to be. And I think that's the problem, is that people in power like to cross boundaries. And there isn't really a simple way of, of teaching people how to handle the situation when, when they do. So, um, and I don't, I don't know what the answer is to that. I think it's just, uh, yeah, I, I guess that's not a good answer, but... I think it is. I think it's, I think it personally, I think it is that the person in power is the one who needs to take responsibility. And as you point out in the book, unfortunately, there will probably always be people like your professor who, whether out of sheer cluelessness or malintent, cross these lines. And 
perhaps what we need to focus on is the people around them. I remember you, you talked about that and the people who are holding them accountable, who are on their same sort of level as of power, whether it's yeah, fellow executives or fellow professors or fellow people in administration. I think that's, that was a really solid piece of kind of practical advice for the collective is unfortunately it seems that there will always be men in particular who just have bad intentions or who are like narcissistic enough to feel entitled to cross these lines and take advantage of people. And perhaps we can kind of quell that to some degree, but perhaps we have a better chance of inspiring and empowering and educating the people who are around them to hold them accountable and enforce punishments when necessary. So I think this is a good point. Uh, as we continue talking about this, um, I, I want to I hear more about your perspective on what consent is. And um, I'm going to read another part. That, I mean, there's just hundreds of parts of this book that were so insightful that I feel I could have read them. Um, but I've chosen at least three or four that I think I'll end up getting to. And so here comes another one. Uh, I'll just read a couple paragraphs here. You wrote that consent and trust go hand in hand. To say yes to something is also to communicate, I trust you. I trust you, the person to whom I am saying yes, to consider my well-being, my happiness, my pleasure, my vulnerabilities, my value and my worth, my desires, my interest, my likes and dislikes, my boundaries, my limits, the heart in my body that hopes and yearns and dreams. You go on to say, we are consenting to people constantly to our friends and to our loved ones, to acquaintances and to coworkers, and even to people minding the cash register at a store. To reduce consent to something relevant only to sexual situations is misguided and wrong. It's to misunderstand the complexity of consent, its role and constancy in, our, in the everyday of our lives. Consent is our default mode of operations. That was very kind of perspective shifting for me. It totally changed the way I was thinking about consent and it resonated immediately with me. This idea that it's totally related to the fundamental trust in any interaction and relationship. So talk to us more about how you define consent and how you see it in everyday life. Well, I've thought a lot about this actually in the context of the pandemic, because one of the things I wrote about um, in that section that you read is, I, I wrote a little bit very briefly about Heidegger and how, um, like I've, I always refer to these, these two concepts I got from him and my philosophy major as an undergrad, which were uh, ready to hand and present at hand. And so for Heidegger, when something is ready to hand, it's functioning as it should. So for example, if you take a door, the door is normally like ready, ready to hand in our life. Like, it's, we're not really thinking about it. We just, we approach it. We, we grab the doorknob or the door handle. We go through it and we don't even really give any thought that we're going through a door. We just do it. 
but the door becomes present at hand, suddenly like present as in we have to reckon with its existence. When we go to grab the door and the handle falls off and suddenly we're stuck, like we can't go through the door. And so suddenly we have to contemplate the being of the, the door. So that, that's what those concepts are for Heidegger. And when I was writing that passage, I was thinking about how that's what consent is for us. Like we are going about the world and consent is ready to hand. Like we are just, you know, like we're handing over our credit card at the cash register when we, when we buy, um, I just bought some watermelon at the supermarket today and the person took it, you know, and they like bring it up and, you know, or you put the thing in the, you know, you give someone money and, and they, um, they give you change. And so we're, we're just constantly in the state of like giving and taking and we don't think much about it and sort of consenting to do all sorts of things. And I think it's consent only becomes present at hand. So we only have to contend with it when suddenly we're in these situations where we're especially vulnerable, right? So, so we, we seem to think consent is only about sex because that's the situation in which we're really worried about it, right? We're worried about someone not um, consenting to us or someone not respecting our wish for non-consent. And so suddenly we're, we're thinking about it a lot in that context. But I think, you know, with COVID, I, I think consent has kind of broken down for us, right? Suddenly those things that we're doing automatically all the time, reaching for our friend to give, you know, give them a hug, or even like, you know, saying, hi, it's nice to meet you. Or especially at the beginning of the pandemic, handing over money or taking a package from the delivery person. We sort of didn't want to touch anybody. Like I remember there was a point where, you know, if, if I came early on, especially before people were wearing masks, like when I was taking a walk and I thought, and someone else was coming down, you know, the street and I was like, should I cross the street? Like to get six feet away, would that be rude? Will the person, you know, think I'm, you know, would they, would they feel upset if I don't cross the street? Like, what do I, what do I do here? And so I feel like suddenly these very everyday things, like even consenting to pass someone on the sidewalk, like even on the same sidewalk was up in the air for us. We had to make decisions about that, that we, we didn't have to make before. And so I feel like, you know, one of the things that I sort of wished for during the pandemic is, is more of a um, thinking about the fact that our everyday consent had had broken down. Because I do feel like, I know from my own experience with my professor, that's kind of how it was for me. Like everyday consent broke down, as in suddenly every little thing I was doing, I had to think about, like, how was this person interpreting it? Like if I went to their office hours, did they take like something I did all the time as a, as a student without thinking suddenly it seemed to mean more to this person. He was taking it in a different way than, you know, than my other professors were, or if I wanted to talk in class, like meant more to him or he felt like I was talking specifically to him. Like I wanted to impress him in a way that my other professors hadn't seemed to interpret things before. And so suddenly everything I was doing as a student uh, took on a whole other meaning or like I didn't know what the meaning was anymore. Like I didn't know how to function as a student in the way that I had before because it seemed that things that I just did normally were being taken in a very different way. And so so anyway, I, I think it can be helpful for us 
to understand consent more broadly than in just this one situation. But we don't often have that conversation. And just to give, you know, watchers and listeners a little more perspective, perhaps, I just want to say, like, it was um, unbelievable, even though I completely believe it, of course, just unbelievable, astonishing how how strategic your professor was in stalking you. And it's like, there's, there's zero, I don't, okay, I'll, I'll mention this really quick. I don't know if you read reviews of your book. I read some of the reviews of your, of this book on Amazon. Most of them were sterling, rightfully so. One of them has me convinced that this person just didn't even read the book because she was saying something like, this is just the story of a woman who wanted attention and I don't even remember the rest, but it was ridiculous. Like clearly she didn't read the book or that, or she was just, I don't know, didn't get it because as a reader, you see objectively. And it's interesting because you take us on the journey of your own processing with it and your own questioning of whether you were misinterpreting this person's actions as being, um, like a stalker when they were meant to be friendly, but it's almost like you allow the reader to see sooner than you see as the character in the unfolding story, that this was objectively wrong and objectively obsessive stalking. So just to kind of add weight here to, you know, as, as people are listening to our conversation, what Dr. Freitas went through was, absolutely traumatic and this person this professor infiltrated your life in so many violating ways including showing up to your apartment one day unannounced when you never even gave him your address but he actually just found your address by accessing your records like which he had the power to do by developing a relationship with your own mother and really exploiting that relationship and calling you constantly before there was caller ID so you couldn't avoid it and just et cetera, right? And so I just wanted to kind of really emphasize this so people ha who haven't read the book have a, have a really good sense of your perspective on this and how un unbelievably difficult it must have been. So... And that was one of the things like you kind of just spoke to this, the way that your con consent like broke down is you mentioned several times in the book that he couldn't hear your nose and you gave him nose of all varieties, gentle nose, fierce nose, passive nose, assertive nose, nose in every possible variation, but he just couldn't and wouldn't see them. He, and, and therefore I remember you wrote, I was in a very impactful line that he never saw you. All he saw was this idealized image of you, his, his own abstract version of you in his head. He like couldn't see through that. And yeah, so those are just some of my reflections here. And what I want, what I want to hear you talk about, I know I'm talking a lot right now, but I'll just share this too. There's a part in the book where you finally tell someone about what you were going through. You chose very carefully a friend who would understand, a friend who would really 
not take your side just to take your side. And so you met with him at a coffee shop and you told him your story and he listened and he responded with compassion and um, like a practical, pragmatic approach, right? Like, what do you want to do? What, what do you want to happen with this professor? And I remember when I was reading that part, I felt a literal physical release of tension in my body that you weren't alone anymore. And it, first of all, just showed me how drawn into the story I really was. I was literally, I was harboring tension in my body as I read that to some degree vicariously experiencing it, right? To the small degree that that's possible. And then you told somebody and just like that, you weren't alone. And I felt relief in my body so I can only imagine how it felt to you. So what I would love to hear you talk about is the importance of not being alone in situations like that. If you're being stalked or harassed or abused, if your consent is being violated, why is it important not to be alone? Well, I mean, for obvious reasons, because then you have someone who can help you understand what's going on and what to do. And just, it's amazing. I think it feels like a relief to say it out loud, especially if you've been keeping it to yourself and carrying it around alone for a very long time as I was. Um, but I also think it's, I think, I think it's in, it's important to find your way to that place on your own to wait until you're ready. You know, I, I don't think it's, it may seem obvious to everyone that like, of course you should tell someone, you should have told someone earlier or, you know, like of course anybody uh, after they've been assaulted or if they've undergone serious like sustained harassment, you know, as, as I was like in theory, like we should tell someone immediately. And I think this is always such a sticking point with everyone. Why didn't you tell someone faster? Why didn't you tell someone the next day like in cases of sexual assault? Um, why did you wait six months to tell someone? Why did you wait a year to tell someone? Why did you wait 10 years to tell someone? Uh, this is something that's always coming up as a reason to not believe someone or like it's somehow a strike against their credibility. And, you know, I, I see it a completely different way, I guess. Like I, I think so much of, so much of my own personal journey, I don't like to describe it as a journey that sounds cheesy, but also it, it gives it like, it almost makes it sound like a positive thing, but um, and it's not. Mm. But my own relationship to this experience, I guess, was like self-understanding for me. Like what happened? What was happening? Like what was going on? Because I didn't know, I didn't know how to name it for a while, but then I was also afraid to name it. Because once I named it, I was going to have to deal with it. And I think telling someone also, you know, gave them power to not believe me, maybe, um, but, or, but also to confirm it. Yes, something was, was not just wrong, but something was very, very wrong. And I think sometimes because it's so life-changing to, to name that thing um, and then reckon with it, you know, once you name it, to have someone else be in it with you, like to have someone else know that this thing happened to you or it's happening to you, it's a big decision. And I understand why people wait a long time to tell someone. 
because they're still processing it themselves or because they're afraid to name it or tell someone else. And I've thought a lot about in my own relationship with students, um, if they tell me something that is clearly problematic, like something that they, they've experienced, like what is my role here? Like, and I, I don't think it's my role to name it for them. It may be my role to, um, to suggest that they like, that they connect with someone who maybe, you know, that they could like a therapist or someone to, to try to, you know, connect them with resources because I'm seeing something that maybe they're not ready to articulate or they, they haven't seen yet themselves. But I don't think it's my job to take, to take it away from them or to name it for them and say like something terrible happened to you and now you need to deal with it. Cause like once you do that, you've taken their power from them. Mm. And so I think it was, it was really important for me to get to the place where I was ready and I wanted to tell someone else. And I chose that person very, very carefully. And I'm lucky that I chose the person that I did because I couldn't imagine that he would have responded any better than he, he did. And I, I, I tell him we're still very good friends and I tell him that at least a couple times a year, how grateful I am that he responded the way that he did. And it is like magic in some ways. Once you tell someone you're not alone in it anymore and they, you know, they begin to share this burden with you. But it also can be incredibly daunting because when you begin to tell other people, some of them don't believe you or someone don't respond um, the way that you want them to. And that can be traumatizing too. So I think, I think it's important to be careful when you tell someone to, to really think through who that's going to be but it is important also to not be alone once you're ready. Mm. I know that's a complicated answer. And I think the answer people want is you should tell someone right away. And in theory, sure you should, but maybe you can't and maybe you're not ready. And I think that's okay too, because everyone has a different experience and a different timeline. Exactly. And this was something else you were kind of analyzing as you talked about it is, part of your healing process was being able to consent throughout the entire process, even of telling people to say, yes, I want to do this, but no, I don't want to do that. And, and for people to honor that, I remember you talked about how important that was in the healing process. And this gets me to my next question about mandatory reporting as kind of a byproduct of title nine. So perhaps you can give us, a quick explanation of what Title IX is for people who don't know, and then talk about mandatory reporting and why you think it can be problematic. So Title IX is, I think a lot of people knew uh, Title IX as, you know, and I did as a kid, was the law that made sure that I could play sports, that women, the girls and women could play sports, that they had equal access to, um, to athletics. And so I think for a lot of people, Title IX was, was that for many years. And then in 2011, the Obama administration um, wrote this Dear Colleague letter to all colleges and universities saying, actually Title IX includes anything to do with gender discrimination and um, gender and sex discrimination. And that includes sexual assault, sexual harassment. It includes things like, um, you know, if you're pregnant, 
and suddenly a professor is giving you a hard time about like how you have to miss class for a doctor's appointment or they're somehow, you know, docking your um, attendance because like you were in the hospital, you know, because you were giving a bit, you were having a baby or so it has to do with a lot of things. But um, but the the thing that's, I think, most been talked about in the news and that I've dealt with the most is has to do with the sexual assault and sexual harassment issue. And one of the things that uh, has resulted because of all the scandal around colleges not handling or mishandling uh, situations of sexual assault and harassment or sexual misconduct in general is this notion of mandatory reporting. And almost all colleges at this point uh, have said that pretty much everybody on campus is a mandatory reporter, which would mean everybody except for clergy and um, counselors and then certain people that now that they're sort of opening it up to that sort of count as counselors in their roles um, on campus. But so what that means is pretty much your average person on cam campus is a mandatory reporter, which would mean that if you, you know, if you wanted to talk to someone on campus, if something happened to you, you weren't sure how to deal with it, or you wanted to, to express it to someone, if you went to an RA, um, so a resident assistant, if you went to a hall director, if you went to your professor, if you went to pretty much anybody on your campus, your coach, um, an assistant coach, they're all mandatory reporters, which means that they can't talk to you confidentially about what happened to you. It's by law, you know, by, you know, according to the university, they could lose their job if they don't then call up the Title IX office to report what happened to you. And so suddenly, so I, I'm very against mandatory reporting, which a lot of people are at this point, but I have been extremely, like, I, it feels very upsetting to me. In theory, mandatory reporting is a good thing. It's supposed to, or in theory, the colleges talk about how, oh, this is how we're proving to everyone that we're not gonna turn a blind eye to, to sexual assault and harassment. We're going to make sure people report it to us so that we have statistics, et cetera. So in theory, it sounds like a good thing, but I would say in reality, what it does is it scares away people who are afraid of launching a process or having other people know what happened to them or that maybe something happened to them. So it takes it out of their control. And I think about that as someone who went through this myself. I think if I had known that telling someone might trigger phone calls to an office and there would be a record made that I had said something that relates to Title IX, like even just, even if nothing happened from there, which most schools have tried to reassure people that like, we're just gonna know about it and reach out to you and offer resources. Like schools have been very careful now to sort of try to walk back what mandatory reporting means. Mm -hmm. um, so even knowing that, I probably would have never told anybody because I would have been so afraid and I would have lived, I don't know what would have happened to me if I had never told anyone. And so, so I think for, for someone who's, who's had their, you know, their consent walked all over by someone as I had for so long to then trample it again, to take away your agency and say, you can't even tell me this without me going around and turning around and telling someone else, like even if you don't want me to, I think this is incredibly traumatic and it really dissuades people from com coming forward. So I think when someone comes forward to you, the best thing that you can do is say, what is it that you need to happen next? Which is what was said, said to me. Because I remember in that moment when my friend said that to me, 
Like, what do you want to happen next? It was suddenly like my, my, my status as a human being was restored. Like suddenly the idea that I could decide over my, over, over what was going to happen next. Someone was going to respect that about me mm. meant everything. And I think sometimes we don't realize how much someone who's been victimized needs, needs that. Mm. Amen. Such a good point. And it's interesting. I've had the experience as a psychology professor, as you can imagine, people have a lot of personal reflections while in a psychology class. I've had the experience of someone coming up to me and saying, are you a mandatory reporter? And then I say, it kind of depends on what you're about to tell me, but technically yes. And then they didn't tell me. And I connected them with, you know, therapists and counselors available on campus. So it wasn't like it was just done at that point, but it was an interesting experience. And I'm reminded of it in this moment because I do feel like I'm the type of person who could have listened in a way and honored them in a way that could have been very helpful. So, so yeah, it was just kind of an example of what you're talking about the way that mandatory reporting does scare people away from telling them what happened. I think what's so sad though about like what you just said, you know, someone coming up to you and, you know, asking that question and then not telling you whatever it was is I think especially professors, like, you know, I know that they were the people that I often felt closest to because I saw them twice a week because I went to their office hours because they knew me and I trusted a lot of them. And so you know, and, and I think I'm that person when I'm teaching too, to a lot of my own students. And so essentially what we've done is effectively, and for coaches too, especially, I think mm. coaches are often those like trusted individuals in yeah. someone's life. They're people you see often every day who, you know, who, you know, who celebrate things with you. So people who know you very well and like admire you. And we've essentially taken those people away from someone who is, in turmoil and wants to tell someone. And I think it's so often we want to tell someone like our teacher because they know us. And so I think it's, it's such a breach of um, that relationship. And, you know, I think you're taking away one of the most likely persons that someone might tell. Mm. So it, it makes me very sad. Mm. Well, yeah, thank you for shining light on this in the way that you do. It's, it's very important that we have an understanding of, of this. And, and of course it's, I, I feel like you can't really understand that unless you've gone through it, unless you've been in that position and have felt what it feels like to want to tell people, but at your own pace and have the process only go as far as you want it to go, only get as official as you consent to it. So it's just very important. And I appreciate you shining light on it. So You've talked a lot about, and you've written a whole book about consent on college campuses and basically the conflict between hookup culture and consent. I've heard you talk about this in other interviews and you, it, it was again, it was a very insightful for you to highlight the nature of hookup culture, which is, as you've said, 
it's supposed to be about like, I don't care about this person. There's no feelings here. I don't care about the sexual experience I just had. We're just hooking up for the sake of these, the thrill and the physical sensation. And that's the idea behind hookup culture, whether or not that's actually what's happening internally for people. And then the nature of consent, as, as we said, like even in that passage I read, it's about actually caring for the person and accepting their trust and honoring the trust that they have instilled when they're consenting and vice versa. So can you talk to us about hookup culture and consent? Well, I, um, I think there's just a, there's a paradox that we have some, we've, we've equated in our culture in general, like hooking up and hookup, specifically hookup culture with sexual liberation. And I think that that's problematic in the sense that it's certainly not what I see in the context of hookup culture among students. I don't see sexual liberation. I see a kind of conformity mm -hmm. to a, a very narrow idea of what it means to be like sexually active and a sexual being and how um, sexual relationships are supposed to occur. And you have all of these um, young adults trying to perform mm -hmm. those, um, those expectations they've been given that they didn't come up with themselves. So there isn't necessarily this, like, do you agree with this or do you don't? just a sort of like, here's the culture, you have to like live it. And then people trying to do that, even if they don't like it. And so one of the things I try to talk to students about is how that's not sexual liberation, just trying to go through this narrow doorway everybody's given you. Like sexual liberation is you feeling like you have choices, that you've really thought about what it is that you want and how you want it, and that you are a decision maker. Like you have agency in this part of your life. And so I think hookup culture actually disrespects the agency of people. But at its core is this idea, it sells this idea that sexual liberation is about not caring. It's about not caring about sex. It's about not caring about your partner. And, you know, and you have all of these young adults trying really hard not to care. And I think at the same time, of course, then we have like mandated by the federal government. Now everybody's talking about consent and they're doing consent education. And so you have a culture of, you know, hooking up that tells you not to care. And now you have an entire culture telling you to care. So because when you're asking someone, do you want to be here at a basic level, you are saying like you are, you are, you know, asking them, you're, you're caring for them. You're saying, okay, I'm, I'm regarding, like I'm, I'm worried about whether or not you want to consent to this. I'm going to ask you if you want to be here. And if you say, no, I'm going to respect that. So there's a, a basic level of care operating there. But so we have two conflicting teachings then, right? You, you have young adults who are trying to live into a culture that teaches them not to care about sex. And then at the same time, we're telling them you have to care about sex in your partner and you have to express that care by asking them if they want to be there, if this is good, if this is okay. And so I, I think we don't want to acknowledge that paradox because we have somehow defined sexual liberation. I think in this, in the context of like, I get to have as much sex as I want with whoever I want and I don't have to care at all. And so we're not looking at the fact that we're essentially like offering young adults this paradox. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that we don't like to talk about caring when it comes to sex. We don't like to talk about caring about our partners because that takes us into ter territory that is about sexual ethics. And I know that um, 
you know, I, I wrote a lot about and consent on campus about how liberals are allergic to sexual ethics. We've just kind of handed over all of sexual ethics to, to the right, like to the, the extreme conservative right, to the religious right, as though, you know, religious, as, as though sexual ethics equals don't have sex. <laughs> and um, rather than really doing the hard work of figuring out, like, what does sexual ethics look like outside of religion or in a sort of liberal context? And um, because it is hard work. And I think the reality is when we are talking about consent, we are talking about to sexual ethics. And to deny that, I think, is just a mistake. It, it's part of why our conversations about consent are so impoverished. I think it's also, you know, I think it's part of why because we're not thinking about things on an ethical level. Um, it's also part of why it's we're not having the hard conversations about power dynamics and you know in sex or like why is it why is it so hard for us to just tell us like to tell a student to say no to their professor it's 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 hard because it's a really complicated situ situation because this is an ethical situation where we're asking professors to behave in a certain ethical way but we're not talking to them about that so we've really taken ethics out of the conversation and i think that our conversation about consent suffers as a result mm. One of the topics that I think is interesting within the topic of sexual ethics and consent is just the role, the role of alcohol and everything. And I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. I know, again, I just want to make it clear that I'm not confused. Like, I don't know, it's, it's just interesting speaking about this as a man. I'm careful not to be misinterpreted when I say something like I'm about to say, which is that alcohol can make consent a little murky, but I understand no means no, to be clear. But basically like an example would be if some, if let's just take the example of um, one, a woman is quite intoxicated and the male is much less intoxicated and she agrees to have sex with him. And she says yes, clearly. And they have sex. And then the next day, she maybe barely remembers it. But the male remembers it clearly. So there's this like difference in like levels of intoxication. To me, that that's a bit murky. And so just to kind of paint the picture with an example like that, what is your perspective on the role of alcohol in all of this and how we can continue to honor consent when sometimes we're giving it while we're not in a clear state of mind? I mean, I think this is one of the hardest conversations of all. I think, uh, you know, because it's so tricky on so many levels, I, I think one of the questions we have to ask, and one of the questions that I've asked for a really long time is, how is it that we are in a culture where um, a young woman passed out on the couch at a party is an opportunity for frat boys to have sex with her, to take a stereotypical example, and yet it's a stereotype because it happens all the time. And I've been doing um, research this year where I've, I've been interviewing people who have um, filed Title IX complaints and about their experience of the process. And, and I can't tell you, like, I mean, it's, it's almost every single um, person I've interviewed uh, passed out and woke up in the middle of someone having sex with them wow. at a party. And, 
you know, I, I just, it's, it's so intense to just think that like, because, because what this means is that somehow we have socialized young men or some young men to believe that a passed out person at a party is an opportunity for sex. And it happens too much for us not to really contend with it. And so, so anyways, we're, we're living in a culture that where this, this is regarded as an opportunity, a passed out woman on the couch um, at a party, because I, I hear it too much for, you know, it's common, it's common, more common than you can possibly imagine. Um, I think, but, but that said, I think that, um, I think it's really complicated, the fact that we are, um, we have all of these young adults who are, you know, drinking heavily, which is, which can be fun, et cetera. And then also, um, you know, having sex and not necessarily remembering things the next day, because I, I think what we, what we don't want to do and what I'm very clear with, um, with students about when I, when I talk to them is um, often their colleges now have policies about drinking and, um, and sex about how you can't consent after X amount of drinks or you can't, you know, there's this sort of, they're trying to put numbers on it or if they're not putting numbers on it because it's in the policy, students are getting very nervous and they're like, well, how many drinks can I have before it's not consent? And people have these ideas also that like, oh, if I'm drunk, I can't consent to sex. And I'm like, no, actually you can like, people are drunk and have sex all the time and it's consensual. Like your parents may have been drunk when they conceived you, <laughs> you know, they may have a whole bottle of wine or two and then here you are. And you know, so, so drinking doesn't mean that sex isn't consensual, but drinking can mean that sex is confusing. And I don't think that there are any easy answers to, um, to how we parse this out. And, you know, I think that, you know, on, on both ends, there are people who don't necessarily remember what happened the next day. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is. And I, I appreciate you acknowledging that. I really do. Some, some sex, sex educators go as far to say, um, if, if alcohol is involved, the consent is not valid. And I was actually reading this article yesterday, just kind of preparing for our conversation. And so I was some, somehow found myself reading this article and it was published in Teen Vogue magazine. So perhaps when you are talking to teenagers, perhaps it's necessary to make things a little more black and white. It's perhaps not as easy developmentally to understand the, the nuances for a teenager. So perhaps that's part of why this particular educator was saying that like clearly if there's alcohol involved, it's not consensual. But that that doesn't feel quite accurate to me. So I, I you know I think I think you're spot on that there's plenty of examples of people drinking and having sex and it's totally consensual. I was having a conversation with a woman who I was recommending your book to a good friend of mine and and she talked about her experience in college of basically how much she loved like drinking and then making out with guys and having sex and it was all very intentional and she as she put it she's not traumatized in the least bit and it was an example of sexual liberation because it was so intentional it was it was what she truly wanted and alcohol was part of it and she felt like it was kind of even a helpful part of it so the social lubricant that many people that that makes alcohol appealing to many people so, you know, an example like that and, and with what you're saying, I, I agree that 
alcohol doesn't make it fundamentally non-consensual, but it does, it's definitely a gray area. And it's interesting. I didn't know that college campuses are attempting to put a number on drinks. It's like, I, I respect the, the, the desire to draw a line somewhere, but that's a very difficult line to draw. I mean, not all of them are doing that, but some of them are because because students will ask if you put it in the policy um, that, you know, that, you know, consent, like, you know, people can't consent if they've been drinking. Well, how much have they been drinking? Like right. You know, how much can you drink and still consent? And I think what's really problematic about it, like, I understand the desire of like a sex educator to just be like, if alcohol is involved, there is no consent. But I, but I, I understand. So I, I understand the desire for that kind of black and white teaching. It, it reminds me of the like, yes means yes, no means no. These have to be enthusiastic. Like in theory, sure, um, but they're just. It's just not true. Like it's just. It's just not true. I mean, it, it would literally be like. I mean, what does that mean then? If your parents had drank two bottles of wine and they conceived you that it was sexual assault, mm-hmm. like I don't think they would. They would say that. And I think it's like part of what we're afraid of is the fact that um, some of these conversations are just really hard to have. Like we don't have perfect answers. People want clear answers, but there aren't. And because we're, I think we've become so afraid of, of nuance in our society of just saying like, it's, this is just really hard. You have to figure it out. And, you know, in some situations there's like, it's fine. And in some situations there isn't, you know, some situations like someone who's passed out, that's an easy one. Like the person can't consent, you know, they're, they're like, they're physically incapable of consent. Um, and there certainly are, are those situations, but in all the other ones, it's really hard to, to figure out sometimes when there's a lot of alcohol in the mix. And I, I think to say, to say to a young adult, to have, you know, if you're gonna drink, you can't consent is, is, is not really doing our jobs. It's kind of like teaching a student like me, like or telling me like, well, you should have enthusiastically and firmly said no to your professor when he showed up at your apartment and said, no, you can't be here. You shouldn't have gone into my file and found my address. Like, you know, that's just a silly thing to expect. But yet that's, that's also what we're, we're teaching people like we're teaching people this is clearly inappropriate but we're not necessarily talking to them about well how do you navigate a situation and just saying well it's really hard to know how to navigate a situation like that because it is Mm. i'll just say as a quick side note there's something kind of musical about the sounds of new york coming through here the sirens the beep of the truck backing up and the honks kind of like it for some reason um so yeah and you know it's it's interesting i think about you know what would I, what do i say you know as a man and as a psychologist and as someone who cares about this and as someone who honestly feels like i have been able to navigate this well thanks thanks to whatever i have to give thanks to i i, I genuinely feel like i've never crossed any lines as a sexual being. And that's something to be, to feel good about myself about. And perhaps I can be in a position to kind of offer some insight to young men. And, but again, it's, it's all like, there's so much subtlety and complexity to this, but perhaps, perhaps a decent principle is maybe 
the first time you have sex with someone should be sober. And again, it's like, it's hard to make these rules, but to me, it's like the whole, the whole context is different if we're talking about a consensual relationship in the first place. You know, we, we've been kind of talking about it in the context of hookup culture in particular, which is where alcohol become, makes it even more complicated, I think. And granted, there's certainly such a thing as marital rape and there's certainly non-consensual things happening within relationships. But I do think that that's less frequent because the relationship is a general container of consensuality, if that's the right word. So I don't know, what, what would you say like as, as guidance for young men, the ones who are really responsible to prevent these violations from happening? What, what type of guidance would you offer? Well, I would say everybody is responsible, uh, but it is definitely um, men who seem to be the majority of, uh, of uh, the people committing violence or who are, you know, crossing boundaries that they, they should. I really think, I mean, this is going to sound sort of ridiculous, but I believe this. Um, one of the things I tell college students and I actually wrote, I wrote a book for kids on sex and consent and sort of like my whole philosophy of like, how do you figure this out? And I talked beginning, middle, and all over the place about becoming a critical thinker mm-hmm. about, about sex. And I mean, that has nothing to do with alcohol. Like, I mean, critical thinking, had, I think, has everything to do with your decision-making around really important things, like who you want to have sex with, how you want to have sex with them, when you want to have sex with them, um, how you want to treat them, how you want to be treated, how much alcohol you're going to have when you have sex or, or none. Or, um, and I mean, it's not a perfect answer, but I do think that, you know, becoming a critical thinker about this aspect of who we are, like, you know, in a very Socratic way, like the examined life. Like, I think we, we don't teach kids to be thinkers about sex. We don't teach kids to be thinkers about a lot of the really important things about who they are as you know, human beings. And so they don't grow up thinking, like sort of really thinking like, oh, I am worth thinking about. I am worth figuring out in the sense that we, you know, we talk about critical thinking around books and history and all sorts of things, but we don't talk about it with regard to different parts of, of who we are. And so what I always tell college students is, you know, like, I'll, I'll be like, you should take a semester and dedicated dedicate the whole thing to like studying, thinking about spiritually, you know, like go, go to get spiritual direction, go to counseling, do, you know, whatever it is, talk to everyone, you know, or like everyone you trust about like sex in your life, like what you want from it, who you are with, like with respect to it, like actually really make it a subject. Like you're studying it, like in relation to yourself, ask yourself, what are your boundaries? Like, what do you want? Like, are they different than what you wanted them to be two years ago? Like, what are your criteria for who you want to be with? Like ask yourself all these questions, write papers about it, you know, like really actually make it a a lively thing that you like subject that you, you think about in your life, really try to work out your relationship to this thing and what it means for your relationship with other people. And I don't think we raise kids to do that. And I think if we did, I know that that's, it's not a perfect method, but I do think, um, you know, if, if kids actually were really thinking through like who they are in this way, 
then they would actually be sexually liberated as in they would see themselves as having agency as being a decision maker around sex and that part of like that they would actually think about their decisions and and i think that includes like i like this person i'd like to hook up with them there's a keg here what is the relationship between how much I'm going to partake of that keg and me then, you know, going to hook up with that person? What do I want this experience to be like? Maybe we would ask ourselves those questions. Yeah. We might still drink from the keg, but maybe not as much as we would if we weren't planning on hooking up with this person across the room. We would actually maybe think to ourselves, oh, I'm only going to drink the two beers because I want to also make sure that I am sober enough to make sure this person wants to be there when we're hooking up. Mm. Like we actually might be able, like we, we might be get used to making those kinds of decisions yeah. as opposed to not thinking about this part of our lives and just sort of letting the waves of outside expectations determine like our behavior, which I think is where we are now. Mm. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. I, I love that. And I love just the emphasis on being intentional and lucid and having these reflections when you're not in the heat of the moment so that in the heat of the moment, you kind of have these well-digested values that are guiding you. I love that. And I have the opportunity to teach human sexuality classes in college. And I just think this could be something I incorporate more into these classes is some some serious personal reflection. I love it. Oh, I I have this assignment I've done before. It's um it's actually it's an Aristotelian assignment, but I really like it. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Nicomachean Ethics, but um, he had this great. So Aristotle has this wonderfully applicable, like just universally applicable view of ethics, which is that it's pretty much. Um, very flexible it's pretty much different for everybody so like ethical decision making is different for everybody so you know there's but he's always trying to get people to sort of tend toward the mean not the extremes mm. and so so you know what that mean is you know instead of having he would be like you know what if you're gonna go to a party and everybody's gonna be drinking you should totally drink but you shouldn't have 20 beers mm. unless you're a 600 pound football player <laughs> because that's really extreme maybe you should just have two or three because like that's sort of like you can still be steady but have a good time and like you know sort of relax and so so i think aristotle's idea of ethics um, really permits us to sort of participate in all kinds of things. Like you don't have to be a teetotaler, for example, but one mm -hmm. of my assignments is um, that you have to try to live an ethical day according to our Aristotle. So you have to think about what's a virtuous breakfast according to Aristotle. It's probably not six cups of coffee. It's probably not six eggs. Maybe it's two eggs or maybe I need four because I am a 400 pound football player or, you know, what's a virtuous, like what's a virtuous amount of studying. And I make students do it um, on a weekend night mm -hmm. because I want them to think, and I try to, I tell them I want you to go to a party and I want you to think about what is a virtuous party? Like, what is virtuous party going according to Aristotle? What is virtuous hookup according to Aristotle? And I ask them to think about that because I want them to, to really think about 
the fact that they're ethical beings all the time because mm -hmm. they're operating in a world full of all of other people who are you know, operating in relation to them. And so there's an ethics to all of our behavior. And I want, and I think Aristotle has a really good framework to help us think about that in an everyday way. That's beautiful. And I imagine that's one of those assignments that's really enjoyable to read too. I've certainly learned about the importance of that as an instructor is like assign things that I want to read. That sounds like um, one of them. I don't know if they want to read Aristotle, but I think <laughs> people have fun trying to think about what it's like to live mm. a virtuous day mm. or like just what's a virtuous breakfast. Most of mm. us don't think about that. So, mm. what, One thing that's really kind of dawning on me in this conversation and as I was reading your book is just how related, how, how much consent is related to human dignity and that to violate consent is one of the most direct violations to someone's dignity. And so, you know, as we, we've been talking for over an hour here and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, those of you who are listening are still listening. And that's just, that's just certainly one of my takeaways is that consent is connected to dignity and to honor consent is to honor someone's dignity. And I think that is perhaps our main social con contract is honor one another's dignity. And perhaps one of the best ways we can do that is by honoring each other's consent. And I just want to emphasize again that you've really shaped my thinking. You've really shaped my thinking around this topic of consent and you've brought much more complexity into it. And I appreciate that. I want to ask you another question, just more generally related to writing, but I want to see first if you have any, any kind of last reflections here in the conversation about consent. I just, oh, thank you for saying, I'm glad that it's helpful or interesting, um, my perspective on this. And I guess I would just say that uh, one of the things that I think we often do with the things we've decided are like smaller violations of consent. Um, so like say in situations I think of like sexual harassment or where um, you know, maybe uh, a student is feeling uncomfortable with a professor and, you know, sometimes I think, um, or just, you know, or a, a person who's in a workplace is feeling uncomfortable with their boss for some reason. And I think, you know, sometimes we um, will be di very dismissive of these things. Like this is not that big a deal. And um, this is just such a small thing. Like you just need to get over it. Like, I think we, we tend to, um, we tend to be dismissive. And, you know, when I said earlier in the conversation about how, you know, I began to think in, in my life when I was going through all this stuff in grad school, um, what does it mean when I go to this professor's office hours? What does it mean when I raise my hand in class? What does it mean when I, um, when I agree to talk to him in the hallway, like when he stops and then I stop and then I, I actually let him talk to me, like what, what am I, what am I conveying to him? And so I think what some people don't realize is how insidious uh, certain, when there is a problem, when someone is violating your boundaries, even in what seems like subtle ways, especially if you are vulnerable to them, 
it can be incredibly oppressive to live that way. You become this person who is watchful of every single thing that you're doing in relation to this person. And it's an incredibly exhausting way to be. And I think, so on the outside, it may seem like someone is making a big deal over something very small, but from the inside of the situation, you may not know exactly how problematic it is or how oppressive it is to be fielding you know, what seems like uh, innocuous attention from someone else. And so I think until you've been in it, it's hard to understand how oppressive, exhausting and terrible it can be. And so it always breaks my heart, I think, after living through what I did, when people are dismissive of what seems like something small, which to that person is not small at all. And so um, I think when consent is violated, when it is, and when it is violated, a person feels it like to their core. And, um, and I think, and they would, I, I, I really don't believe that people make it up. Like when they come forward and say something like that, because you really do being dismissed when you come forward. And so, um, so I think respecting that and really, realizing that it may sound small to you, but it is not small to that person mm -hmm. what they've experienced for them to come forward and tell you. Incredibly well said. So the last question I wanted to ask you is about basically how, how the heck have you written 23 books? <laughs> you are a prolific author and clearly it's something you enjoy. And I understand that, you know, you, it's your profession and you also teach and you also do research. And it seems that it, as you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but writing is your primary profession at this point. So can you just share with me, especially as someone who is attempting to write a book, how, how do you do it? What's your process? Like, how do you do this? Well, uh, I write every day. It definitely, I have, I usually tell my students that rituals are good around writing. You know, I have my own rituals, like to like the coffee I drink, to like the fact that I have my books with me and I read before I write and I write every morning when I wake up. And so I think around writing are, you know, really important. Um, but I, you know, I, my motto for a long time has been, you know, write like your life depends on it. And I told my students that, and, you know, like write with urgency, like write from your heart, like write the stuff that you really need to, to write. Uh, because I, I've sort of believed like in a fundamental way that if you do, if you, if you write like your life depends on it. And I've actually said like, you know, go to your novel or go to your book, like it's your therapist. And like, you know, tell it, like get all the stuff like you need out. And because it can feel so good to write that way. But I also feel like if you do that, if you go to your novel, like you like you go to your therapist, like you're you're actually going to write a book with momentum mm. and, you know, with, like, with oomph to it. Mm. And but I also think that uh, it's taken me a really long time to figure out, uh, I think, even maybe just this year 
in the last few months, I've reflected a lot on that motto I have of write like your life depends on it. And I had this epiphany earlier this, this year about the fact that, um, oh, so like I had sort of known that writing saved me after everything in grad school, but I really thought about how um, writing, writing was my, both the way that I saved my career, but it was also um, my escape or the place I went to in my brain, novels especially, uh, that was safe for me from everything that happened in graduate school. And when I wasn't quite ready to process it, I sort of went to a place um, and wrote from a place before everything had happened in graduate school. And I stayed there for a really long time and I wrote a lot as very productive. And it wasn't really until I think I wrote my memoir that I began to let the now of my life into my writing. It took a really long time for me to get to that place. Mm -hmm. And so I think I write from a place of need and hope and uh, all sorts of things like mm -hmm. writing is my playground. So I, especially I've said a lot, I've done a lot of interviews recently because I had just had this book come out and it's a novel and people keep asking me about my writing. And I've said a number of times that novels feel so generous to me in the sense that it's like this big floppy open space. Like it's, novels are really big and they can accommodate a lot of humanity and you have a lot of space to be human in them, you know, for all your characters to be human. And there's something so gorgeous about that, that we have these forms that we can take up and, you know, sort of use them to play out life in all these different ways and relive our lives or the things that we didn't get to live in real life, you know, in our characters. And there's something so extraordinary to me about that. And so I feel like, um, like, how can you not be a writer <laughs> when it allows for, for such um, nuance and humanity and space to ask all your hard questions about life? And I, the other thing I tell my students is it's the best place to take all the risks and commit all of your crimes is like with your characters <laughs> as opposed to just in real life. Like it's a great, you know, like it's a great place to try stuff out. Um, without the the consequences that we get, like the real consequences that yes. we get life. And there's something so wonderful about that, I think. Yes. Yeah, that's beautiful. Your answer kind of reminds me of this kind of famous uh, quote by Alan Watts, which you may have heard. Um, apparently someone once asked him if he had any advice for aspiring writers. And he gave this response, which was, stop aspiring and start writing and he says he's like if you're if you're writing you're a writer right like you're a damn death row inmate and the governor is out of the country and there's no chance for a pardon like you're clinging to the edge of a cliff white knuckles on your last breath and you have just one more thing to say like you're a bird flying over us and you can see everything and for god's sake tell us something that will save us from ourselves and then he says take a deep breath Tell us your deepest, darkest secret so that we can wipe our brow 
and know we're not alone, right? Like you have a message from the king. <laughs> and I, I feel like I, I wanted to even memorize that so that it became part of my own psychological architecture and would affect the way I approach writing with that exact urgency like you just talked about, like your life depended on it. And what's beautiful to me as I heard you reflect is it sounded like your life kind of did depend on it in many ways. Yeah, I think I, it took me oh, until this year to realize that that motto, because I think writing has, I've always written with such urgency, even if I'm writing something funny, like I feel like it, it comes to me in this very sort of like intense way. And it's like, I have to get it out. And partly because I feel like, oh, clearly I need to crack myself up right now, which is why I'm writing funny, you know, like, like I think when I'm, when I'm really sad, I write funny. And when I'm really happy, I'm able to write about sad things or some of the harder things. And, but I was thinking about this year about how, oh yeah, like my life has truly depended on writing. And, you know, I, I feel like I, you know, like let your books be a gift to you when I've told my students, like, or, you know, your book can be a gift. Like you can decide this book is going to do X in my life. Like what I want, you can want something from your books. You can let them give you something and like, it's okay. Like even if my, one of my new year's resolutions was to stop saying, I know this sounds cheesy, but I know that sounds kind of cheesy. It's hard to get out of that habit. Um, but you know, I, I think it's, I think books happen this gift to me. And then, I, cause I think I've let them be um, a gift. And then I think, you know, so that's the first draft. The first draft is this, and then all the other drafts. Are, I say it again, I didn't want to miss that. You cut out for one second on the keyword. Um, the first draft is what? The first draft is the gift to you. Mm like gift to yourself, I think. And then all the other drafts are for your readers. That's sort of mm -hmm. how I feel like it. Like you're, because I also think, um, I think we write for ourselves, but we also write to connect. Mm -hmm. And I think the part where we're really thinking about the connecting is once we've gotten out whatever it is that like we've needed for ourselves. And then, and then we think more about all the people who, who might be waiting or who That's might not feel alone too. That's really insightful for me because I think sometimes I get ahead of myself and I start thinking about that before I've even written the first draft that can be meant for just me. I, I think about the, you know, the, the imaginary reader reading it and what that might sound like to them. And it does actually stifle me a little bit sometimes. So that, that's, that's a really helpful little bit there to just think of it as the first draft is being a gift to myself and then I can, I, and I've always thought about myself too, that I'm an okay writer, but I'm a pretty good rewriter. I feel like I'm, I'm pretty good at editing my own stuff. So, and that's where it really like upgrades what I've written. So to just allow myself to like write imperfectly and make some sense, but not perfect sense and things like that on the first draft, that's always a, a big deal for me. I have to commit to that. Otherwise I just, get in my head and get stifled and just don't write words. Oh yeah. I don't worry about anything in the first draft. I let myself have it all. Even if I'm going to cut a hundred pages later. Mm. So um, I just don't worry about it. Mm. So, 
that's also why revising is not my favorite, but you know, mm. that's, that's the, like, that's the hard, hard work for me, hmm. but you know, it all has to be done. Well, you have, I mean, by every measure, been an extremely successful author. And I just want to congratulate you for that from the bottom of my heart. I know as you wrote, it wasn't your first dream, but hopefully it's better than anything that could have happened because I just, it's immeasurable the impact that you have on the world with that much creative output. It's just, it's amazing and it inspires me personally. And again, just to reiterate, this book of yours, the first of what will not be the last book I read of yours, has really affected the way I think about a very important topic. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for this conversation today and all of your thoughtfulness about my book and this topic and, and your wonderful questions. I really enjoyed being here. You're welcome. And thanks again to everyone who has listened to this whole conversation. We appreciate you. And yeah, Dr. Freitas, Let's stay connected, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Oh, you too. Thank you. You're welcome.